Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome, welcome, um, Dr. Hill. So glad you're you're with us, joining us this morning from. Uh, it looks like your office at BU. Uh, we're so happy to have you. Um, and good to see you all. Wow, this is a we've got a great turnout. You see, there um, we've overflowed into the second screen. So 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 <laughs> lovely. Um, so this um, so we've we've started a series. Um, this is our first of five evenings uh, together in Lent, uh, where we read and think about um, John's Gospel together. Um, my my clever catchy title for the series is um, eavesdropping on holy conversation in in John's gospel. Um, the uh, the idea came to me, you know, as I was as I was thinking about um, how rare and precious and challenging real conversation is uh, in our day and age, how essential and how important and how um, how we're all kind of struggling. Uh, uh, the genuine, genuine conversation, genuine. I'm going to go ahead and pause right here and just ask us. Um, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Um, so if we could, if we could all just take a second and, and go ahead and mute our microphones, that would be lovely. And if Christina, you could just give me some backup. So, um, so conversations, how do we listen to one another? How do we engage one another, learn and grow in conversation? Um, all of the, all of these big questions swirling around in my mind. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, um, uh, the fourth gospel is so full of rich conversations. Um, Jesus crossing geographical, socio-political boundaries, um, not to bludgeon people into the kingdom, but to converse them, invite them um, into, into this new reality. So here we are um, reading the Gospel of John together. Um, a couple of logistics I've just mentioned. Uh, we've, we've all got our microphones muted, which is lovely and so helpful. Um, we are recording this evening, so um, check your Friday email if you want to go back and um, and re-listen to, to any part of it. Um, so the plan is for um, Dr. Hill to, um, to lead us in, in 45 minutes or so of, of an introduction, uh, an overview of the gospel. And then we'll, we'll have um, you know, 20 to 30 minutes at the end for some, for some conversation. Um, so as you're as you're listening, as you're as you're taking it all in, um, feel free to to scribble down any questions that you have. You can also enter them uh, into the chat box, and uh, towards the end of uh, tonight, we can we can circle back and and have some some conversation. Uh, so, Reverend Hill, um, as as you all know, uh, well he he doesn't need an introduction. Um, He's the Dean of the Historic Marsh Chapel um, at Boston University, professor of New Testament, um, teaches classes on the Gospel of John each year, um, pastoral theology. So he's a renowned scholar and preacher. Um, and I can tell you from my, from my 30 minute chat with him on Monday, 
maybe most importantly, he's a, he's a humble student of God's word. Um, so we're, we're just delighted to have you. Thanks for dropping in and sharing this, this evening with us. Um, so before we, before we pass it over to him, uh, I want to open us in prayer and ask, ask God to join us this evening. So let us pray. Loving God, we come to you on this chilly February evening, grateful for so much in our lives. We thank you for our health. We thank you for this loving community. We thank you for the friendships and love that sustain us. God, we thank you for your holy word where you meet us. God, we ask that this evening we might be nourished by the living bread. We ask that you nourish our minds and our imaginations and most of all our hearts, that we might encounter the mystery of the word made flesh, that we can know, love, and serve him more fully in our lives. Bless Bob as he shares and bless us as we listen and engage. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Bob, over to you. <clears throat> Friends, with thanks to Father Yates, to Garrett, and to all of you for your hospitality, I will try and be as succinct as my current condition and season in life allows. My children and now grandchildren do tell me that I uh, tend to get a little longer winded as I get a little bit older. So you will find that as kind of a congenital issue, but I'll be as brief as I can be um, about a subject that is very dear to my heart and I as expect is to you all as well. And that is the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And I'm really bringing you one word, which is John is very different. John is very different. So if someone stops you and asks, what did, uh, Bob Hill say about John, if you're in Wegmans or somewhere shopping and somebody says, what did he say? You can say, well, he said, John is, uh, is, is different. Take a minute as we begin to just remember, it'll be different for each one. Some of the mystical and sonorous and beautiful verses from John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not one thing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in that darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
the true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. The law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that ever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. It is the spirit that giveth life. The flesh is of no avail. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door, I am the gate, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life. Let not your heart be troubled, hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And many other verses there are. They stay with us. What a fine selection you've made to begin your conversation about conversation with this gospel, very, very different. John chapter 17, uh, verse three, and I'll just pause for a minute to uh, give you a chance to adjust yourself to my manner of speaking and presence with you and I did marry a young woman whose grandfather came from Scotland uh, to Nova Scotia, Cape Breton at age nine and worked in the mines in Pittsburgh. And I went back with her to Glasgow one year to see her ancestral home in Lark Hall, Lanarkshire. But that's off topic, sorry about that. It's just nice to hear uh, such voices. John 17, verse three, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is a very different verse than you would find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, eternal life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kingdom of God. John, know thee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, believe 
trust. The only true God. That's a strange phrase. It admits, it points to the fact that there's a pantheon of possibilities rather than the one in the synoptics. And Jesus Christ, not the rabbi, not the teacher, not even um, any other collection of titles, but ha, Christos, the Christ. John, whom thou hast sent, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begotten, born. I'm trying to give you in one verse, in just a few phrases, the distinctiveness, the utter difference of the Gospel of John set against those verses that are so meaningful to us. You know the old saying that the scripture's shallow enough for a child to play in and deep enough for an elephant to drown in? Scripture is both theology and poetry, and we can appreciate both. And while I'm bringing you a little bit more of uh, a theological and a philosophical and historical critique, I don't want to miss the chance as we start to love the beauty of the verses. Wonderful they are. Of course, I'm a little prejudiced. I spend uh, every Monday morning in the fall at eight o'clock from eight till about quarter of 11. And who wouldn't want to get up Monday morning at eight o'clock and who wouldn't want to come in and read the Gospel of John and who wouldn't want to travel through whatever to, although this year, of course, it's been by Zoom. John. Now, friends, I am bringing you a tale of two parts of John. And to do that, I'm going to tell you, I, I warned Garrett that I would do this um, in a bit of a, hopefully to make it a little more engaging, a little bit of an autobiographical way. The first part of the Gospel of John relies on the people with whom I studied in New York, to my mind. And the second part of the Gospel of John relies on the people I, with whom I studied in Montreal. But how did we get there? Jan and I met in high school and the Methodist Youth Fellowship in Syracuse, New York. We had our first date on February 19th, 1971. So we just celebrated our 50th anniversary last week. We then broke up for a while and uh, then we're married. Uh, I went to Ohio Wesleyan and she is a music teacher, went to the Crane School of Music in Potsdam, New York. Thereby, after being married, we moved to New York. I had been there one year and lo and behold, even though I'd grown up in a Methodist parsonage and worked at a Methodist summer camp and so on, I really knew very little scripture. And my advisor was Father Raymond Brown of blessed memory, who wrote still the most significant and two volume uh, commentary on the gospel of John under the influence of his colleague and my then later friend, J. Lewis Martin, Lou Martin, whose book, History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel is the core to what Brown and Martin were able to do in New York. And what did they do? They showed over against some past scholarship that 
the Gospel of John <clears throat> was really set in a community of um, people who had moved from being Christian Jews to becoming Jewish Christians. They moved from life in the synagogue to life on their own. And there was both a push and a pull in that. And we find that, again, to my mind, most clearly uh, found, delineated, described in the first part of the gospel. And I'll come back to the parts of the gospel in a minute. After a while, we started having children and we moved to Ithaca, New York, to a place called, the church was called Forest Home. I wanted to say not Forest Lawn, but Forest Home. We were bringing as much life as we could and we were there for a few years. And then went on to Montreal or just south of Montreal to serve churches where I drove in to study and do my PhD at McGill. Here I'm gonna pause and say that where Lou Martin and Ray Brown taught us in, in, in New York about the Jewish background to the New Testament, I found myself not only in a different country and uh, learning to navigate through French signs and so on, uh, but in a different milieu of study of the fourth gospel, which was heavily influenced by my advisor, Frederick Wissey, who translated or was one of the translators of the Nag Hammadi Library, which is a collection of Coptic Gnostic documents found in, published first in 1976, found in the 40s, just after the Dead Sea Scrolls, or long about the same time. And where Martin and Brown focused on the Jewish background to the fourth gospel. My teacher, Frederick Wissey, focused on the Greek, even Neoplatonic, even Gnostic background to the fourth gospel. His colleague, a young fellow at the time, weren't we all, was N.T. Wright, who some of you will have read some of his books. And he was uh, a little bit different, um, a British scholar and Wissey was Dutch and came out of the German uh, background and, and Tübingen and so there was a, a combination of, of views there. And then uh, my bishop called and asked if we'd go back to home and we came back to Syracuse and uh, had the pleasure as, uh, as your priest and pastor is doing a guiding and being a part of a growing and loving congregation. You can just see it on the screen here, noticing you and uh, not and nobody has yet fallen asleep, at least, at least as far as I can tell. And we say at Marsh, after the sermon, some people arise inspired and some awake refreshed, and both are good outcomes. So if it's been a long day, I understand. Well, we came back and worked in, and I taught in Syracuse and then in Rochester. And then we had this phone call from people in Boston University who wanted us to come and preach at Marsh Chapel and teach in the School of Theology. and. Dean in the sense of giving coordination, guidance and oversight to uh, religious life at BU. And so we came. My six o'clock conversation was with a, a freshman who wanted to know about Jerusalem. And we ended up talking for much of the time about Ellie Bissell and how influential Ellie Bissell was for four decades at Boston University, uh, giving lectures each autumn, three very well attended lectures. So having the privilege of working in and through uh, Boston University. Uh, 
My own quick take is that you are best advised, one is best advised to follow the insights of New York, Raymond Brown and Lou Martin for chapters two through 11 or so, the first half of the gospel and well advised for chapters 14, 15, 16 and 17 the second part of the gospel to look a little bit farther afield. John is very different and take into account not just the Jewish background, but the Greek, the Hellenistic and even the proto-Gnostic or Gnostic gospel uh, materials in, in those chapters. You notice I started with chapter 17, verse uh, three. This is a this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent for a, a particular reason. I'm going to pause and try and tell a story that may, may or may not illustrate this um, for you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic gospels. There are three siblings, not quite three peas in a pod, but pretty similar. Mark is earliest, as you know. Matthew and Luke come later. And Matthew and Luke use most of Mark. And then they add their own materials from a document we call Q, which is just a way of saying a source that's apart from Mark. And then they have their own individual ingredients. But they're very similar. John, at almost every point, is quite different, much more different than we have, to my mind, allowed John to be over the years. How is it different? Starts with the prologue, very different, chapter one. How is it different? It includes the seven miracle signs of chapters two through 11 from Cana in Galilee and the wedding in Cana to the raising of Lazarus, very different. Different in its transition chapters 12 and 13. Notably, there's no Last Supper in John. Notably, Peter's role is very different in John. Notably, there are no parables in John, et cetera, et cetera. It's very different mostly for chapters 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, which is the second big part, not the signs of chapters two through 11, but the sayings of chapters 14 through 17. It's kind of like a moonscape. It's kind of like being on Mount Everest. It's kind of like being in a windy, cold place, unlike really anything else in Holy Scripture. How different? Very different. And then the Passion narrative, 18 and 19, the resurrection accounts, four of them. I'm not saying they're alternative endings, although but there are four different resurrection accounts in chapter 20. And then the gospel ends, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God and believing you may have life in his name, case closed. Oh, but then we have chapter 21, which is an, a later edition, an epilogue. So there's no quiz at the end, but you've got a prologue in chapter one, an epilogue in chapter 21, the book of signs 12 to 11, the book of sayings 14 to 17, and a little bit of material here and there. How different is John? Well, let me ask you, where do you find Nicodemus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? You don't. Where do you find the woman at the well in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? You don't. 
Where do you find Lazarus raised from the dead? Don't you think we might have heard about that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? But no, we don't. Where do you find the beloved disciple, the most intriguing, mysterious figure in the whole gospel? Found only in John. Where do you find the paraclete other than in John? John is very different. And one of the great, maybe the chief, the crowning difference is that he was able to use both his inheritance out of Judaism and his culture, his context, his setting around him. John is able to, what John, pardon me for quoting John Wesley, I hope that's all right. We're, uh, we're kind of second cousins to the Anglican tradition who talked about plundering the Egyptians. John went into his life and work and teaching, guiding and using his preaching as a, um, a way of conveying the gospel and used the language and culture around him. And there, there are many aspects of that. Because you have an interesting conversation, I want to pause and just, just talk very quickly, but uh, I hope pointedly about these seven signs. They are actually chapter two and all the way up to 11. You might see them as sermons or as homilies that include an event and then a narrative about the event. Include the raising of Lazarus and then a narrative about the raising of Lazarus. Include the healing of the man born blind and then the narrative about the healing of the man born blind. They kind of had a, they may have had a, a homiletical beginning. Uh, and that by the way is, is really relies on the work of a fellow named John Ashton, a British fellow who we had at BU with um, a few years ago, wonderful guy. He came, um, over from London and his luggage got lost. So he had to spend three days and three nights in the same sweater and the same trousers and wander the hallways without any uh, particular refreshment. Wonderful, wonderful fellow. John is different in, and here I'm going to give you uh, the story that I've been lumbering toward, which is I grew up in a family of four siblings. The first three of them Bob, the oldest, can't you tell? Two sisters, Kathy and Cynthia. And then my youngest sibling, brother, John. Now you can't see it anymore because of age and season and so on, but Bob and Kathy and Cynthia all had brown hair, very plain brunette, brown hair, there we were. And then along came John, aptly named for this illustration. And he had, and still has, more or less, bright red hair. And people would say, where did, where did this redhead come from? This very different uh, fellow. He doesn't have the brown hair of his siblings. Um, and, you know, there wasn't really a quick way to explain it unless, you came with me in late August every year to our family reunion in Cooperstown, New York, well, a place well worth visiting, the old family farm. 
And every year we did the same thing. We ate any number of kinds of food, ham and turkey and chicken and all kinds of vegetables and every kind of pie you could think of and mince pie and apple pie and banana cream pie and any number of other things. And then the 60 or 70 of us, if anybody could still stand up, would go and stand on the porch in this beautiful old farmhouse veranda and we'll take a photograph. And guess what? Almost everyone there was a redhead, except these three, Bob and Kathy and Cynthia, who were brunettes. John, my brother, found his own self in the extended family on that porch. John, the fourth gospel, the redhead, if you will, finds his own family, particularly for the second part of the gospel, along with the other late first and early second century documents, some of which are found in the Nakamadi library that are very different, but connected and similar in many ways to the second half of the gospel of John. Like uh, books like, these are esoteric names, the Apocryphon of John and the Paraphrase of Shem and the Treatise on the Resurrection, and I'll leave the, the list there. It was a man named George McRae of blessed memory, a Jesuit scholar at Harvard, who tragically died at a young age, who early on unearthed this connection between John and the um, the non-canonical materials uh, of the early second century, the late first century. In other words, to see John in his natural habitat, to make sense of where his red hair comes from, you've got to get outside of the nuclear family of the canon. You've got to get outside of the nuclear family of the canon, the three brunettes and the redhead, and move to the large extended family. And then it begins to make sense. And so, here are some things as you're moving forward uh, and thinking about the difference of John. You'll want to know the content. That's important. You'll want to know the context, perhaps Ephesus, perhaps the year 90, <clears throat> perhaps a borrowed upper room with a group of people who have over long time realized that the original idea they had of who Jesus was was not sufficient to explain their experience of him. They acquired a higher view of the Christ. And that makes the Gospel of John different in its own full sense right there. You know, sometimes the, the seminarians, they like Matthew, Mark, and Luke a little better because, and why not? They're wonderful materials. I teach that too because they're a little bit, uh, the, the Jesus of those gospels is much more human. In John, Jesus is God striding upon the earth to take Ernst K. Simon's phrase. It's a very different, radiant, radiant picture of the person of Christ. Now, alongside that, we've got some real trouble in John, which is particularly in chapters seven and eight, where 
some of the seedbed for the great lasting tragedy, 21 centuries of tragedy of a Christian antisemitism is located. And one of the reasons I teach the fourth gospel on a regular basis and spend, I'm glad to be invited and, and to, into your, and the warmth of your fellowship is to make sure we recognize that, and this is going more toward my New York teachers than my Montreal teachers, that the bitterness expressed in terms that are frankly anti-Semitic particularly in chapter seven and eight, comes out of a family feud. This is Lou Martin's insight and embedded in Ray Brown's long commentary. What, what do we mean by that? It means that the Christian Jews became Jewish Christians and moved out of the synagogue. Three times in the gospel of John, chapter nine, chapter 12 and chapter 16, there is a new word in Greek used first and only first here in John, aposunagagos, out of the synagogue, meaning that the harshness of the fourth gospel, and it's there, and it's brutal, and it's awful. John is the most beautiful and also the most difficult of gospel. Comes, who do you get angriest with? Not that any of you, I know that you're, you're very temperate and very ironic and hardly ever get angry with anybody, but say, Imagine you did, with whom do you get angriest? With those closest to you, with your family, with your family and close family and friends. And in this process of tug of separation out of the synagogue, aposynagogos, the gospel of John was built, was built and born. The three distinctive events of the Life of the Gospel of John, its early prehistory in the year 70 and 80, its composition around the year 90, and then its subsequent history in the letters, uh, the epilogue to begin with chapter 21, and then the letters, first, second, and third John, <clears throat> are born forged in the white heat of a family feud. It's right in the Bible. So if you ever have a difference with somebody in terms of religious life, you'll know you're not the first. And uh, the Gospel of John starts with this dislocation. In their experience of the Gospel, the community of the beloved disciple found grace in dislocation. They found grace right in the heart of dislocation. Secondly, along with dislocation, they experienced disappointment. This is the great courage and heroism of the fourth gospel, unlike any of the other gospels and really unlike any other document in the New Testament. John, toward the end of the first century, faced this, that the greatest, most precious hope of the primitive church, the expectation that Jesus would return very soon, soon and very soon, Paul writing, the Lord himself will descend with a cry of command, the archangels call, the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead Christ will rise first. Then we, the living, the remaining, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. That was the precious diamond of the primitive Christian church that soon Jesus had been raised from the dead. The end of the world must be coming. It didn't come. It still hasn't. Good, for, good news for us. John unlike any other 
looked that in the face, that disappointment in the face and said and wrote, what we once believed is not true. And instead of the end of time, we have the paraclete. And instead of speculation about apocalyptic eschatology, we have spirit. And in place of something just around the corner, we have the hour is coming and now is presence. John is all about presence. John is all about presence in this moment. And that's what makes him so readable and preachable and lovely for the future. Dislocation out of the synagogue, disappointment in the primitive Christian hope. And third, and you can tell I'm going to wind this down and land this plane after a little bit. Not just disappointment and dislocation and disappointment, but departure are at the heart of the gospel. Yes, of course, the crucifixion. Though, and I mean no criticism here, for John, both cross and resurrection are very secondary to incarnation. John is about presence, the radiant presence of the, the risen Christ in the community of faith. But at the heart of the gospel, there is also this sense of departure. Yes, the crucifixion. Okay, right. Central. But there's something else there. And that is the departure of, as much as we can see, the great patriarch who had guided the community from its inception. Perhaps John himself, certainly connected to the beloved disciple, who as we all do, came to the end of his days and died. And the gospel apparently, or on this reading, is born out of the sorrow and grief of the departure of the, the venerable homilist patriarch. So continuing the image of seeing somebody at the grocery store, if they say, what did Hill talk to you about? on the Gospel of John. Well, he said it was very different. And then you say, they say, well, what did he mean by that? And you say, well, it was different because they were dislocated out of the synagogue. It's different because they were disappointed and faced it in the early Christian hope, primitive Christian eschatology. And it was different in the sense of the departure behind it, looming this shadow of the departure of the, the great patriarch. Uh, who guided the community of faith. <clears throat> Dislocation, disappointment, and departure. Friends, um, I, I can go on much longer and I'm used to doing so for three hours. This is a limited time and we, I wanna hear your voices too. So I'm going to pause and see whether at this point, uh, coming on about 40 minutes or so of, conver of, of presentation, there may be some things that you all would like to um, have me say a little bit more about, or you might like to point to yourselves, or you might like just to ruminate about. I know from now more than a year, about a year of experience of teaching on Zoom that it can be a little bit difficult to sense um, who's ready to say something and so on. We just have to to live with that, give ourselves a little bit of time 
and get to know each other by convert conversation, which is which is your which is your theme. Um, and I'm grateful to have a chance to come and, and speak to you about one of the passions of my my work life and teaching, which is the fourth gospel. That I just wanted um, to thank you so very much. That was really, really a lovely um, analogies and um, helps to anchor the, the, the whole context of it. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for responding here's a i don't garrett i don't know how you want to do this yeah sure i see a i see a couple of hands um and and maybe i'll call on them so i saw paul hoffman and then steve mccarthy and then al rossiter so let's go in that order yes dr Earl, thank you so much i well, I think what i was amazed by can you hear me okay thumbs up i got you i was amazed by the like the aggressiveness of jesus I felt like he was taunting, trying to get a reaction. I found a pattern of like taunting, taunting until somebody basically wanted to throw rocks at him. That was just shocking to me. Well, let's go right, since you raise it, Paul, and, and what wise of you to do so. The darker parts of the fourth gospel are found in chapters seven and eight, where Jesus you know, this Jesus is not like what we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He, in these passages, says things like, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Amos, Micah, Moses, all who came before me. That's part of what you're referring to, and it's right there. This is not original to me. I find it very convincing, though, and it's Lou Martin's insight expanded by Raymond Brown's two volumes. Part of the background there is the dispute, the dislocation, the shifting out of the synagogue that produces this kind of uh, rhetorical um, acrimony. Or your father... This is, I, I'm sorry to bring this, but it's important for us, particularly when we come to Lent, and especially when the reading is from the Gospel of John, and there are all kinds of liturgical things we could talk about there too. But to, to be able to treat this material and say, uh, when, when Jesus is cited as saying to his interlocutors, Jewish community, your father, the devil, that's anger. I mean, that's a kind of rhetorical um, unhappiness that we find when there is real dispute. So it's, it is there. The advantage that we have over the, given um, what I would think of now as the last 40 or 50 years of study is that we can see it as rooted in a particular setting, a particular setting in life, a particular community, where there was real tension. I'm living through, I'm, I'm a lifelong uh, Methodist, uh, my beloved church and I love the church. I, I just love the church. Everything lastingly good in, the, in my life has come from the church. My, my name in baptism, my faith in confirmation, my community in Eucharist, uh, my calling and work in ordination, my my closest relationship in marriage, my daily sustenance in 
pardon and forgiveness and my hope of eternal life in unction. All, I, I love the church, but we're going through, a, and I'm a liberal of the liberals, but you know, we're going through a really difficult time in Methodism right now. I just learned that our general conference, which was supposed to settle this this fall, has been postponed yet another year. So it, it, it helps me to see that we're not the first community to be dealing with this kind of uh, uh, religious uh, challenge and rancor and difficulty. Some of, the founding, some of the founding of this country is based on that and some of the sub-stories in the development of this country are based on that, so. So Dr. Hill, maybe underline my question is to what extent, what extent would be, you know, Jesus saying this versus what John is putting into his mouth? Yeah, I, I come from the school that basically, uh, I don't think, I'm, I don't mean, and I mean this about the synoptics too, what we have in the, the, the Gospels is a record of what the church in the years 70 through 90 or so preached and taught. Our evidence there is not for the life of Jesus in the year 30, but it is for the lives of the communities of Mark, communities of Matthew, communities of Luke, and especially the communities of John. It doesn't mean, you know, that there isn't anything there that we can know, but I, I'm giving you my bias. I just don't think we have very much there. Um, James Sanders, one of our teachers at Union, gave us a short list of the eight things that we could absolutely know about the history of Jesus. Um, and they're not very remarkable. I mean, but I mean, they're remarkable, he's Lord and Savior, but they're, they're not historically that remarkable. What we have as evidence for history in the New Testament, from my perspective, is history of the communities of faith. Now, does that mean that um, Jesus said none of the things in Matthew and Mark and Luke, or perhaps a bit in John? No, I think there's material. The, uh, the way I, you mentioned the choir, somebody is singing in the choir. Um, every passage in the gospels has four parts in it. There's a light soprano voice, which is the history of Jesus. There is the alto voice, which is always the most important voice. Here's to the altos, meaning the community, the church that founded it. Jesus, the soprano, alto, the church, Tenor, lend me a tenor, is the redactor, the writer, the writer of the gospel, John or Matthew or whomever. And then the basso profundo is the bass voice, is the continuing interpretation of the scripture through the New Testament and on. The first interpretations of the gospels are found in the New Testament. What do we mean by that? The interpretation of John is found in 1 John, 2 John, found in the epilogue and then in first and second and third John a bit. The interpretations of Paul, the seven authentic letters are found in the Deutero, the secondary Pauline letters later and following. And somebody asked uh, in the chat I saw about the gospel, about the uh, apocalypse. Um, here's where mo most scholars today would say that the apocalypse the, although it's named, and there's a reason for that, and I can go into that if you want, named for John, it had really nothing to do with the author of the Gospel of John, uh, far from it to some degree. Uh, so, I'm, but you, so thank you for the question. That was, yeah, that was lovely. And I saw a couple of our altos just begin to glow <laughs> as you mentioned that. So um, 
Um, lovely. Uh, Steve McCarthy was going to ask something. Yes. And then uh, Al Rossiter. No, I think uh, our guest just answered my question because um, you you ended by saying that uh, John was not apocalyptic like the synoptics and yet the apocalypse is attributed to him. And I think you more or less answered the question, but I, since you said you could elaborate on it, I think I'll ask you, would you please elaborate? Because that's okay. a very important topic. Thank you. Um, almost all of the standard hope language that you find in um, Mark 13, the so-called little apocalypse, and its passage um, parallels in Matthew and Luke is gone from John, to almost totally gone. Now, there are a few verses left in chapter five um, and, um, and so on, but you notice that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when you come to the coming toward the passion, the big chapter set aside is for predictions of the end, wars and rumors of, of wars. But of this day, no one knows, not even the son, but the father only. John has none of that. And what's there in its place? John 14, 15, 16, and 17, which to my ear is taken to, from and given to a, a Greek culture. Um, and, and so that's one part. Let me go to the apocalypse. One thing we don't really ever teach enough about is that the church lived for oh, well over a hundred years without a, without a New Testament, all right? And then uh, a fellow named Marcion came along, the most popular preacher in Rome in the year 150 of the Common Era. He happened to be a Gnostic. His father was a rich shipbuilder from Istanbul, and he developed a strong preaching ministry in, in Rome. He was later excommunicated, oops, but he developed the first proto-New Testament. That means he put together Luke and some of the letters of Paul and named that as the Bible. Over against that, here we have Marcion to thank for it. The church came along and said, no, that's not enough. What doesn't that include? Well, first of all, it doesn't include the 39 books of the Hebrew scripture. And the, the church decided to keep creation and redemption together. So kept the Hebrew scripture. And then the other gospels, including the gospel of John, and then the letters, uh, not just the Pauline ones, but the, the secondary Pauline ones, and so on. So... Now, in that process of canonization, this took a little while to get to, Steve, but um, there, to get into the Bible, all right, the process of collecting the can canon preferenced those who could claim an apostolic authorship, okay? Mm -hmm. And John, in the apocalypse, the name of John uh, is part of probably why the apocalypse was included. It's very different material. Um, I used to teach it up at McGill and enjoyed doing it very much. It's, it's just very different. You remember Martin Luther, Martin Luther wanted to exclude uh, Hebrews and James and the apocalypse from the New Testament 
because they didn't preach Christ. Well, that's an indication of how different. Uh, but, but what I was getting to, Steve, is that the reason the naming of the God of the apocalypse has to do probably with the politics of the formation of the canon where having an apostolic name helped the same with the secondary Pauline letters and some others. That's not the only criterion usage. Matthew was the most popular gospel. John's presence in the canon is in many ways, very remarkable. Like, uh, the 39 books of the Hebrew scripture, when you come to Ecclesiastes, let's salute, pretty much everything you find in the other 38 books is contradicted. In, in the gospel of uh, John, the difference is, is similar in, different in kind, but similar in scope. So that's, that's what I was gonna add. Thank you very much. Very helpful. Um, Al Rossiter, you were going to ask something. Al, you're muted. You're unmute. Okay. There you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, um, given the uh, sort of social and medical and political strife of our times, is there something in John that particularly addresses what's happening in our society today? Something you would pick out as uh, where, where John addresses what's happening in our world today? Well, that's both a, an insightful and a kind question, Al, and I appreciate it. John's core is the abiding, mysterious, ineffable, elusive, abiding presence. And Garrett, um, I don't know the stories on the screen, so I'm going to be mm -hmm. as care careful as I can be. Mm -hmm. um, but We have all been through a real season of loss where for a year, the grieving and the remembering and the accepting and the affirming that we need at the time of death, we just haven't been able to do very well. My mother was a Latin teacher. My mother died June 5th, not infected, but affected by COVID. We've had so many losses at BU and staff and faculty in our congregation. And I, I, you know, I know, but I don't know that you all have been through that too. What John brings, and this is true of, of much of the rest of the, of the New Testament is a sense, John is the pinnacle of it, of presence, the lasting abiding presence. One of my most famous predecessors at Marsh Chapel, the desk I'm working at is from Daniel Marsh, but it was used by Howard Thurman when he was here. Some of you will have heard of Howard Thurman. If you haven't, pick up his autobiography with head and heart or pick up his, uh, probably his most significant uh, book, um, 
of uh, 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 the um, about those who have their backs against the wall. Um, Howard Thurman grew up down in Daytona Beach, and he wrote once that he would walk at night on the beach, and he had a, he had a lot of challenges in his life. And he said at one point, and Al, this is not John, the language from the Bible, but it fits John closely. He said, the ocean and the night surrounded my little life with a reassurance that could not be affronted by any human behavior. The ocean at night gave me a sense of timelessness, of existing beyond the ebb and flow of circumstance. Death would be a small thing, I felt, in the sweep of that natural embrace. Thurman was much more creation than resurrection-oriented. John's resurrection-oriented sense of presence, I think we need to be able to share with each other, honor, even in the breach. Um, I'll just add one. I, I, we have this odd circumstance of we tape the sermon for broadcast on um, either Wednesday or Thursday. I look forward to not having to do that because a lot can happen between <laughs> Wednesday and Thursday and Sunday, Garrett, as you know. But the sermon this week, there was this beautiful story about a nursing home in Wheeling, West Virginia, that opened up for the first mm. time. And it's just such a beautifully written little story. of. Uh, so we, we use that. Um, our dear these friends, or the folks in the nursing home from Wheeling, West Virginia, finally able to go down and eat with one another because West Virginia has done very well in, uh, in the COVID vaccination process. And uh, this 97 year old woman was so excited to go down and got all dressed up and had her hair specially curled and went and sat at a meal of cheeseburgers and potato soup served with the finest china and silver that they could find and said, I'm too excited to eat. I'm just so glad to see everybody. <laughs> I don't offer that as a solution to the, you know, the 500,000 deaths we've had that are part of what you've lived through, but there's something there, sense of presence. That's that's what John brings. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Other, um, we've got a few more minutes here. Um, any other questions or comments? You don't want me to get started. Uh, John John Small. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Garrett. Uh, I was, I love the fact that one of the first chapters you talked about was chapter 17 and the references to eternal life. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what you think the Gospel of John teaches us about eternal life and how it helps convince us that there is eternal life. Yeah. 
Well, it's a very important phrase to John, and thank you for spotlighting it for a minute, uh, John. Your John is without an H, but we'll consider you connected by, by name. Um, first of all, for John, heaven is here and now, all right? Um, to, for him, the radiant power and presence of the, of the Christ figure that grew somehow in the apperception of the community of the beloved disciple is the, 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 the linchpin, the crucial part of faith, uh, living life in the moment uh, and recognizing the presence, uh, presence of God. However, now I'm gonna go from the content to the form of the gospel, form of the writing to answer your question. John chose to write a gospel. Now that we assume we, that's what we have. So it doesn't really shock us the way it should, but you know what, especially for the second part of the gospel of John, much of what's in there might well have fit in something else like a treatise, a philosophical treatise, or like um, a letter as the first and second, third letter of John or something else. But the the evangelist who put the fourth gospel together specifically chose to write a gospel. And why? To emphasize resurrection life, which is the core of the gospel tradition that he inherited. In other words, if the content emphasizes presence, the form emphasizes eternity. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Well said. Um, just scanning across here. Paul Hoffman, you want to jump back in? Just to say uh, uh, some phrases that resonated were come and see, come and see, come and see. And um, an odd little detail, he, he throws in little things like Jesus puts a towel around himself or he doodles in the ground and the dust and uh, so it's interesting that he has this very broad declamation, but he also throws in like really specific human touches. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, he's drawing. Um, he's drawing on his own set of traditions and the details in it are fascinating. Um, and that's where um, I would invite you all to sign up for uh, a course at 8 a.m. in the morning on Mondays and then read carefully through the gospel. It's, uh, you know, I've been doing it a long time and I always hear and learn something new. Uh, I will say I miss, as, and I really am very grateful for your hospitality uh, to be with you tonight. I miss the presence of my students, you know, um, this term I'm teaching a course on pastoral leadership and that also meets Monday at eight o'clock. It's the time I'm free to do it. And I have one student in Ghana, okay. And I have one student in South Korea 
Okay. And I have one student in Denver. Okay. And then I have some students who are only a block or two away, but are in their dorm room and fairly comfortable, I might add, uh, both in attire and in uh, mode of recline and so on. But uh, it, it's, it's not quite the same. And Dr. Hill, so, so with John's turn of phrase, he was a poet or a polemicist or a preacher or what, what was he? Um, I think that there's a, a poetic, uh, a, the, a theological poetics that John best exemplifies in, in the New Testament. And that's another whole um, set of things that we could talk about. Um, he has his own vocation, and, and it is, it's a beautiful set of poetical passages. The prologue, in the beginning was the word and so on, is usually understood to be um, a hymn. So think, it, sorry, I'm not a singer. I married a musician, but I'm not a musician. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's a, it's a hymn that John may have discovered somewhat late in the process of the composition of the gospel and realized, you know, this is what I'm trying to say and placed it up front. Okay. Second, if I could just add, you, take your time when you get to 14, 15, 16, and 17, because that's really where the, the poetry reaches its, its height. And uh, I've come to love it very much. Sorry, Bob. Um, maybe as a as a last question, as I as I think about us going forth in peace, and and uh, this isn't a small question, but a, maybe a pastoral one. The theme of peace shows up again and again. I mean, Jesus leaves his disciples peace. You know, my peace I give to you, my peace that the world cannot uh, take away. Um, he shows up in his, um, in his resurrection and he says, peace. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, is, what is he saying there? What's the promise? What's the good news? What was he saying to that first community? What's he saying to us today with that word? Well, let's just start with the word Irene in Greek. Uh, you can hear Irenic, the name Irene, Irenic, peace. In John, it is what was one, one on the far side of all these hurts, on the far side of departure, on the far side of dislocation, on the far side of disappointment emerging right in the heart of them, not having to wait, but in the process of, uh, and maybe this goes to Al's question as well, uh, recognizing and being candid about the challenges, the difficulties and the losses. And yet, as Paul says in the, Romans for this week, hoping against hope 
And later suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. I, I don't, um, I mean, I should, I'm sure this is true of most of us. I have a lot of questions as I get older that I don't seem to afford very direct answers, but in the community of faith, as you're doing tonight and your pastor has guided you, the good news is we don't have to do it alone. And that's the kind of peace that can come in conversation and in, uh, in community. And I'm glad for that. And I'm sustained by it as I know you are. And I'm glad to uh, enjoy that with you. Mm. Mm. And I know that there are lots on the screen who, you know, uh, probably have another question or three and sometime in the unforeseen future, maybe we'll run into each other and we can talk about that a little bit. Uh, so. Thank you. Um, bless you, uh, Professor Hill. This is, this has been such a, such a gift. Um, your presence with us, um, has, blessed us all. Um, and we'll, we'll continue. I, I feel like um, Bob has kind of gotten all the ingredients of the gospel out and we've got several different skillets on the stovetop. Um, and we can sense the, the aromas that are, that are arising in the kitchen. And we'll come back uh, next week. Um, so, uh, Next week, uh, David David Urian will be uh, leading us. We'll be looking at that uh, rich and challenging conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus at at night. Um, again, uh, Bob, thank you, thank you so much. You've you've been so generous with your time. Thank you for dropping in. Um, this has been such 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 a blessing. Um, your gifts to me and your Garrett, thank you for your pastor leadership. And we'll see you sometime. I don't know at Fenway park or whatever. We'll have a <laughs> run into each other. It's, it's coming. It's I'll coming. Let you go now you may have other stuff you need to do. Blessings to you. Okay. All right. See you everyone. We'll end here.